Okay. Y'all. All right. Hello, welcome to Local Terrain Podcast. This is episode seven, and it's also the second part of oil spills. So last week we had Andrea talking about oil spills in the ocean, mm-hmm. and this week we're going to be talking about oil spills from pipelines and on the Earth's surface. But before that, Andrea, what have you been up to these days? Uh, well, this past weekend, we went up to Lake Superior, and that was pretty fun. That was a lot of fun. Um, we just did an overnight. We camped out of our car. Yeah. It we, was our first time camping out of our car, like sleeping. Like no in, tent. Yeah, no tent. Seeing if we can, we want to do a van build, you guys. Yeah, ever so since. testing the waters. <laughs> ever since we did the, like, sustainable housing episode, mm-hmm. we've kind of dove into the deep end on like van life and living out of a van and it just seems like a lot of fun we have consumed so many youtube videos yeah almost probably too many honestly i mean you gotta do your research yeah and yeah last weekend we went to uh like a superior (laughs) the north shore Yeah, yeah yeah and it was it was pretty fun one thing though, the state parks were insanely crowded. Yeah, I would say I'm. I have mixed feelings about it because mm-hmm. I'm really glad that people are kind of getting in touch with with the natural world again through yeah, COVID. Certainly. But on the other hand, it feels like people are not necessarily being as safe as they should be. Yeah, the, the trails were pretty pretty packed. It was it was pretty crowded. And we ended up not doing some of the things that we had planned on doing because of just the sheer amount of people. Mm-hmm. There was a lot of the parks that we went by or tried to go into on the North Shore had people parking along the side of the highway. Yeah. They were so packed that all of the parking within the park was full and then people were just there was lining up yeah there was no overflow the overflow was the shoulder of the highway yeah i this still overflow yeah but like the <laughs> the usually there's like overflow parking at places like that mm. already the overflow was overflowed yeah it's a yeah but I, we found so. we found a quiet little pebble beach and it was really peaceful and that was actually my mm. favorite part was kind of sitting on the beach just like super chill definitely my favorite part too yeah i did a lot of digging around in the rocks it was very calming and relaxing (laughs) i also really enjoyed getting pictures of like the night sky the night before Oh, that was really cool and i got like a little time lapse of the stars moving through the sky that was a lot of fun actually Mm -hmm. i i think i'm definitely going to try and do some more nightscapes or whatever you would call it in the future like a time lapse of yeah. the sky at night mm-hmm. kind of thing. Astrophotography, I think it's called. I have no idea. If you want to see more about like what we did on our trip this weekend, you can check out the YouTube channel. Mm-hmm. Um, we have a, a video up. Yeah, Local Terrain. Go check it out. Okay, so should we just jump into... Yeah, you're the one telling the story episode. this week. I've got my PJs on. I'm all cozy. <laughs> You've I'm ready to LaCroix. listen. I know I got my Lacroix. And now that we're in like in like stereo, you can actually hear the <laughs> you can hear the Lacroix. Wow, 
So we were experimenting with new technology for our podcast. So we have a different type of recorder that we're using right now. Yeah, so this microphone setup, uh, you just get way more of the, the room itself and not just your voices. It's a little less isolated. Some people like it, some people don't. So we'll see how this episode sounds. Yeah, we're just testing it out. This is actually the device that we want to use to do stuff in the field because it's super portable. Mm, super. This is way more portable than an audio interface that you would plug into your computer. Yeah, you can just put this in your backpack. You can see it on the YouTube video. <laughs> but anyway, what's the story, Andrew? So, I'm going to be talking today about pipelines. They have been in the news quite a bit in the past few years, and for good reason. Pipelines right now are probably one of like the biggest methods used for transporting oil as well as natural gas and other like natural resources across the continent. So while freights might be the transportation method of choice for across the ocean, pipelines are definitely that across the land. So pipelines are actually the most preferred method for transporting oil across the land. I'm sorry, I have to interrupt you. Yeah, what? Because <laughs> I just... Ay, <laughs> <laughs> ay, ay. Okay, continue, please. I just had to let that <laughs> Pipelines are the most common way to transport oil across the Earth's surface. And they aren't really the most practical. Other methods include transporting it by train slash railway or by semi-trucks and by, uh, what are they called? Like those, uh, those like big barge, a barge. Yeah, a, a, a barge. <laughs> what are those big barges called? <laughs> Believe it or not, they're large called barges. barges. A large barge. Yeah, so, so we got barge, <laughs> we got train, and we got semi-trucks. And all of those are like the oils contained in a container and then put onto this I think vehicle. They just, I think they just coat the semi-truck in oil. Well, I'm just, just saying it like it's different from a pipeline because the oil is contained in something and then that that container is put onto a machine. Whereas a pipeline is just constant, right? So I guess you could look at it as a pipeline is analog where you're having a steady stream of the oil being put in while semi-trucks freights railway are more digital where you're getting individual units Pixel. of oil <laughs> yeah you're getting it by the barrel either way though and with yeah. with both methods the oil is contained and it's not exposed to open air so there's no chance of evaporation since oil companies see that as like a loss of product and a loss of profit. It's also kind of toxic in terms of fumes. Mm -hmm. We kind of talked about that last week a little bit. Yeah. And one of the big issues with pipelines is it's inevitable that they will leak. So compared to semi-trucks or railway, pipelines give out a significantly higher amount of oil into like spills or pollution or drainage and actually since 1986 
pipelines have spilled about 3 million gallons of oil every single year. Oh. Yeah, so that freight uh, that freight ship that spilled oil in, into the ocean just like a few weeks ago. Like a couple months ago now. Yeah. Late July. That was... In Mauritius. <laughs> Sorry, I just burped. <laughs> a little bit of natural gas. Uh, so that is what is spilled through pipelines every single year since 1986 when we started recording pipeline oil spills oh my gosh so that like has been the average. just when we started recording it yeah oh yeah whereas before that like mm-hmm. who freaking knows and that's kind of something that's factored into the construction of a pipeline is that you will have spills and you'll have leakages throughout its usage because you're just pumping so much oil through this pipeline and it covers so much land that it's inevitable it's going to have stress and tension on it and you're you're going to be stressing it as long as you're using it and they're not straight like they have to go with the kind of contours of the land and stuff Mm -hmm. so there's going to be joints and things like that i also am always curious about like maintenance on pipelines for oil yeah, it has to be pretty regular. So whenever you bury an oil pipeline, the entire top of it has to be exposed. So okay. you have the pipeline, you bury it, and then there's dirt on top of it. And then you can't build any buildings or infrastructure over that pipeline. But it's still covered in dirt. So you mean exposed as in like... Like you, you can't have buildings on top of a pipeline. Right. So it's essentially unusable land except for the pipeline. Yeah. Now you can have roads uh, like go over it, but you can't have roads go like in parallel with it or oh. for like a long stretch of it because you have to be able to get to it in case of a leak. Right. So I think one of the most popularly known pipelines in like the US is definitely the Dakota Access Pipeline or DAPL for short. Yeah. And there was a big controversy around this. Because DAPL was bringing oil from North Dakota and the oil fields in the grasslands over to Michigan, where, or sorry, Illinois, where the refinery was. And that is always the the predicament with extracting oil is you have to transport it from wherever you're collecting it to a refinery. And we talked about that in the last episode. Yeah. So with pipelines being the primary way to take oil from the oil fields to the refinery, you have to make a lot of decisions about where you're going to lay it and how much oil you're going to pump through it. And it involves a lot of like government bodies and communities. And it is, it is such a headache looking at like all of the legal stuff that goes into putting down a pipeline. Yeah. That honestly just makes more sense to be putting it in freights or like in semi trucks. Yeah, but I I assume that the companies don't want to do that because it's more cost and labor. Exactly. Because you have to pay the drivers and stuff. Yeah, it 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 costs more to ship it via like freight or semi trucks. But it's safer and it actually takes up uh, less resources than a pipeline. Mm. 
Hey there, Busy Bees. Thank you so much for listening to the podcast. And if you've liked what you've heard, we've also been having a ton of fun over on Instagram, YouTube, and our website. Each platform has fresh content, so you can check out something new on every place you go. So if you want to check out the Instagram, it's local underscore terrain. That's terrain spelled T-E-R-R-A-N-E. And the YouTube is also local terrain. And then our website, believe it or not, is localterrain.com. On for the show. So let's talk a little bit about Dakota Access Pipeline. Work on the Dakota Access Pipeline started around 2014 with Dakota Access, which is the like transportation company, working to get permissions from the government to have rights on the land. And that's the thing about putting in a pipeline is you have to have rights to the land that that pipeline goes through. Yeah. And since they're so long, you have to get rights from so many different groups. And at the beginning, they were working with Iowa to get sovereign land and floodplain permits. And that was all going through something called the Iowa Senate Study Bill. And this bill was actually supported on both sides of the aisle. Robert Hogg, who's a Democrat, uh, and Bobby Kaufman, who's a Republican, were both in agreement on the Dakota Access Pipeline. Mm -hmm. And there was a unanimous vote in Iowa Senate to allow the DAPL to continue. Okay, so were indigenous groups consulted or a part of this at all? Yeah. Uh, at the same time, Standing Rock, Sioux tribes, as well as other tribes in Iowa were also in discussion with Dakota Access, and they did not agree with where the pipeline was going to be placed. And that's primarily because it was planned and was eventually installed through indigenous land that had like religious and historical significance to the community. Mm -hmm. And there was concerns about it leaking, which is totally appropriate since pipelines always leak. But the US government, as well as Dakota Access, still were pushing through for the permission of Dakota Access. The pipeline, the Mm -hmm. Dakota, yeah. And this really came to head like 2015, 2016, where protests were finally starting to get media coverage. And it even got the attention of the president, who at the time was Barack Obama. And Barack Obama was essentially saying that the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers, who were kind of like the, the surveying body to make sure that everything's actually appropriate, he essentially put in a statement saying that the Corps of Engineers had to spend more time looking at each environmental location. Because at first, they were just looking at how it would interact with like one river, and then they just summarized that the situation with this one river would be the same for all of the rivers. And what- What? Yeah, and what the Obama administration was saying is that okay, whoa, whoa, you have to go through each river and each ecological system. And, and you treat have to... it individually and give it, like, the respect that you would yeah. give. Yeah. And this is actually a pretty common tactic to prevent certain construction projects from going through because it takes so many more man hours and so much more labor 
that usually things will fail in the planning stages. Mm-hmm. If you have to look at every <clears throat> single river, which we can both agree is like ecologically appropriate and ethically the right thing to do. Yeah, it's ridiculous that you wouldn't do that because every river, like, yeah, it's a river, mm-hmm. but every river has different characteristics and yep. has different species and different ecosystems that it flows through and different peoples that it affects. Yeah. So specifically, in 2016, the permit was temporarily revoked since it crossed the Big Sioux River, as well as a wildlife management area which contained historical and cultural sites. Even farmers in Iowa filed lawsuits at the state that uh, they were upset the government was using something called eminent domain to take their land. What's that? So eminent domain is essentially where you have your property uh, reclaimed by the government to be used for usually a public resource, but sometimes eminent domain is also used for a private corporation. So it's basically the government saying like, yeah, you own this land, but since you are in our country, we are going to take this land and use it for whatever we want. Mm -hmm. Exactly. such BS. And at the same time, Standing Rock Sioux Tribe sued the U.S. uh, Army Corps of Engineers in D.C., but was denied before it even went to trial. Later, they attempted to appeal the decision again and were once again denied. Okay, so why were they denied? Uh, they were probably denied on the premise that they didn't have like enough supporting evidence or enough things to back it up. But because of the Obama administration, the Corps of Engineers did halt it. And it was especially due to Lake Oahe, a sacred lake to the Great Sioux Nation. And this was definitely criticized by North Dakota Senator John Hoven because, like we had just mentioned, halting things like this usually stops it in its tracks. And he was like, you can't just um, pile the paperwork on this to stop it because I want this to go through. Probably because he has financial ties to the company. Well, the entire state of North Dakota has financial ties to the oil industry. Yeah. Without the oil industry, North Dakota would not be at the financial security that it's in right now. Mm -hmm. And then, unfortunately, on January 24th, 2017, Trump, Donald Trump, made one of his first executive orders to continue the construction of the pipeline and to ignore the concerns of the previous administration and the Lakota people. So, sorry, I remember this happening, and I remember, like, like, I don't remember much about it, to be honest. And I also am ashamed to say that, like, I am someone who more recently started, like, really delving into politics. Mm-hmm. Um, so... When this was going on, I was, I was not paying as much attention mm. to news and politics and like environmental justice. That's kind of part of the reason why yeah. we started this is because. And that's okay. What matters is that you're paying attention now. Yeah, and I feel like part of like part of the reason why we started this podcast is to make topics like this more accessible to people that find it overwhelming. Mm-hmm. To it really like, is overwhelming. It's there's so much information, but basically what I'm trying to say is. 
I don't really remember what happened when this was happening. Mm. Is it true that they started construction before they had permits for all of the land? Which is why, like, the halting versus the reinstituting the construction was happening. So they continued construction on parts that were already approved. And then in 2017, when Trump made the executive order to continue construction, Mm -hmm. they immediately went ahead and built all of it as fast as they could. And they actually finished it in April of that same year. So less than four months, and they had the entire thing constructed. And the Corps, of, the Corps of Engineers actually hurried approval for a lot of the stages, willfully ignoring many treaties and regulations. And more than 160 scientists outside of the Corps of Engineers and Dakota Access actually spoke out against the pipeline. And all 160 scientists were ignored. Yeah, because that's the MO of this administration. Is yeah. That why would you pay attention to scientists? Or, or anyone... Anyone not in <laughs> the Republican Party. Even some archaeological groups said that the Corps of Engineers needed to treat each water crossing as its own survey. Yeah, since that's what you're supposed to lack do. of proper research left many historical sites vulnerable. I think part of that is that um, when you you're supposed to when you are making doing construction for a new project you're supposed to have archaeologists go in. I think it's called recovery archaeology or no rescue archaeology. That's what it's mm. called. Where they go in and they do a survey of the area where you're going to build to make sure there's nothing there that might be disturbed before you build anything on it. Yeah, that makes perfect sense. You also have something similar in geology where you have to have a full geological survey of the area to make sure it's safe to build on, to make sure that you're not building on any like harmful or like risky landscapes yes yeah, so things like sinkholes or yeah. whatever mm-hmm. so all of that kind of stuff was just like ignored because they wanted to build this thing as fast as possible while they still yeah. had the go-ahead from the government exactly okay and then on september 2nd 2016 tim mentz who's a former historic preservation officer for the standing rock Sioux testified in D.C. that 27 graves and 82 sacred sites were to be disturbed by the Cannonball River section of the pipeline. And then that same weekend, the area was being bulldozed. So it's it's hard to ignore that when oil industries or large corporations like this come into an area that they willfully ignore the the pleas and the concerns of the public. And in my opinion, that's usually where you want to have the government come in and have checks and balances on private industry to make sure that they don't do things like that. Mm-hmm. Because otherwise, you're infringing on other communities and their abilities, abilities to thrive and you're you're also preventing there being like an equal playing field. If you allow corporations and private industry to take control of private land or sacred land, then no, nothing's really safe at that point. Yeah. It just it just goes to show that 
how little they care that oh they're, this, yeah. I mean we know that they don't care but mm-hmm. the fact that um there was a DC appointment yeah. in defense of like saving this land mm-hmm. literally at the same time that they were just bulldozing it yep yeah it's it's a a pretty pretty common uh sequence or series of events yeah that this is this is what what is happening and honestly the pipelines are nothing in comparison to the tar sand pits in canada the the tar so sand tar it's like a mixture of loose sand and gravel that is like filled with petroleum and this is naturally occurring yeah 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 this is naturally occurring okay it's kind of like like a giant swamp like a giant oily swamp and in canada they have huge like the biggest dump trucks in the world coming in taking all of these tar sands and it's actually considered like the largest devastation on the earth that this tar this tar sand pits have got to the size that they are i'm okay i'm still sort of confused about like i understand what it is but how how what does it look like like do do you just like if you're just walking if i were a being Mm -hmm. that was walking through the canadian wilderness Mm pre-mining would i just come across one of these things like or is this something that's uncovered by other human activity yeah i i'm sure there was some on the surface okay it's just it's just petroleum rich soil and sand there's okay. nothing special about it. Because when you say that, in my mind, it goes straight to, like, um, cartoon or, like, B-movie quicksand. It, some of it very well could be quicksand at certain times. Yeah. it's That's not impossible, for okay. sure. Because, like, with tar sand, it's naturally occurring. So this is something that evolves over a long duration of time mm-hmm. and it's it's adapting and it's changing at a pace where the surrounding environment is able to keep up with it mm-hmm. so just because you have petroleum rich sand doesn't mean that you can have biotic life on top of it or that you could have like a fully thriving ecosystem also interacting with it and that's exactly what we saw before the mining is that this was a beautiful landscape that was thriving ecologically Mm-hmm. And then the tar sands were underneath it. And for a long time, the tar sands were seen as being too cost effect, like too expensive to extract. Because the process of refining tar sand is way higher than like petroleum oil. Mm-hmm. And because it's so expensive for a long time, they just thought, screw it, it's not even worth touching it. But now that the oil reserves are being depleted and there's a higher demand for oil in the world now they've started attacking the tar sands way more aggressively Mm -hmm. and this has really increased the amount of activity in northwest canada and it's now to the point where they're probably going to extract every last little bit of tar sand from the area yeah and it's an entire biome that's been decimated 
because of this. Well, it's a biome that they're consuming. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I feel like that's an something I've never really thought about before is that when when you use a natural resource, you're not just consuming that natural resource. You're consuming the entire, like, you're not just consuming that natural resource. You're consuming the entire ecosystem that thrives off of that natural resource. Yeah, in Canada, we're also seeing oil exploration going into the Arctic Circle. Mm. And one of the steps in order to find oil reserves is... Uh, like sedimentology Mm -hmm. and essentially what they do is they get a trawl boat and they put it out into the arctic ocean and they drop barrels of explosives down to the bottom of the ocean and then they blast it and that blast sends an echo through the layers of rock so and then they can see what it looks like underneath the ground and these blasts in order to map what's underneath the ocean's surface cause huge disturbances for whale populations or the entire marine population any any living thing in that entire area Mm -hmm. and it devastates a pretty like large space because whales have highly sensitive hearing yeah they can hear for miles away and these explosions make it absolutely deafening like it it would be very difficult to sustain life in this kind of environment yeah. And with the depletion of oil and the demand for oil increasing, the amount of like environmental risks that they're willing to make in order to find these oil reserves is getting riskier and riskier for the rest of the world. Mm. Ooh, this is a heavy episode. <laughs> yeah, the last I mean, one was knew, pretty heavy too. We knew it was going to be, but... Yeah. So, do you know anything about how... Tar, was it called tar, tar sand? sand? How it's processed? It's a it's a really long process, which is probably they, part of why it was so expensive yeah, to do. They essentially take the sand and they shake all of the oil off of the sand using detergents, and mm. then now they have a mixture of oil and detergent, and then they have to like chemically like separate the two of them. We talked a little bit about detergents as a way of. Um, getting water out of the ocean last mm-hmm. episode. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but. so it it's also used in fracking. Mm-hmm. So this separation of detergents with the desired oils is it's pretty well studied. A lot of like organic chemists have been studying this kind of stuff for like the past century. Mm-hmm. But it does cost a lot of energy, and it does cost a lot of labor in order to do this. You know, if we just spent that money on labor to move oil not through a pipeline. Well, why not take it a step further and be like, okay, let's take all this labor and all of this capital and invest it in green energy, such as solar panels. Yeah, that's a whole other episode worth of stuff. <laughs> yeah. Actually, can I do a, a shout out? Yeah, do it. Because I just discovered this podcast that's super new. It's called How to Save a Planet. It's mm. really good. It's like way higher produced and like <laughs> way more profesh than we are. Um, but it's really well done. And they do have an entire episode up right now on wind power. 
and like oh awesome. wind energy it's really good and i i was actually i messaged them and they messaged <laughs> me back oh nice and it sounds like they're going to um talk further about that that's not like the only episode that they're going to talk Sweet. about wind energy but there's so many cool yeah. green energy alternatives like yeah. geothermal energy where which is so geothermal energy is where you're extracting energy just from the heat that comes from the center of the earth whoa yeah whoa yeah do you consume like what do you consume just the heat so uh, that's pretty much how oil works right how Mm -hmm. we get energy from oil where you combust it and then like that change in heat is how steam engines work where you boil the water and then the steam is able to move mechanics okay so in that podcast this was like a very passing um remark Mm. but they were talking about how like nuclear power centers yeah and like electricity electrical plants and stuff is actually just like boiling water yeah Mm -hmm. to make machinery parts move yeah it's i don't know how any of that stuff works and like hearing that like very brief mention of that i was like holy crap this is like just such a simple thing we just need the heat yeah it's all about uh uh, it's all about there being like a gradient of heat so and then you can have movement like of energy Mm. and water is one of the best like mediums to do that because it stores so much energy for each degree it increases in in temperature because water has a high relative heat you guys, I'm learning about water molecules, and they're crazy. <laughs> they're so cool. Yeah. So, yeah, uh, geothermal energy, you're essentially heating up water, and it's behaving the same as any other energy source that uses similar mechanics. Mm-hmm. And, yeah, mm-hmm. wind energy, solar energy, you have, like, wave action turbines. Mm-hmm. Those are fascinating to me. I don't really understand them that much yet. Yeah, hydropower from, like, dams and rivers. Though that one is... Problematic. Yeah, problematic. Because you're you're really affecting the behavior of a river. And all of, like we said earlier, all of the ecosystem and life that kind of is within that river, you're Mm -hmm. totally changing. Though the technology around hydropower dams is increasing where a lot of dams are becoming way more passive and mm. allowing the river to continue its its life as normal. And it's also important to like point out that some highly isolated communities that are far away from any urban centers have actually been able to have electricity and access to internet because of things like hydropower. Mm-hmm. So if we look at like the high plateaus of Tibet, mm-hmm. you are actually seeing an increase in education because we're finally able to have schools with computers in these communities because of hydropower. Well, and I would assume wind power would be another thing to take advantage of there. Definitely. We're actually seeing some of the greatest like green energy innovation or even environmental climate innovation as a whole Mm -hmm. coming from these communities that are sort of on the outside of the the conversation. Mm-hmm. Like in Tibet and Nepal, you're even seeing communities forming man-made glaciers 
in order to preserve like streams for like spring harvest and things like That's that. That's so cool. Yeah, it's it's really cool stuff. And this kind of innovation and this kind of knowledge is a, a part of indigenous knowledge as a whole. Because if we look at North America or if, if we look at the tar sand pits of Canada, mm-hmm. that is devastation that's only happened in the last hundred years. Yeah. And besides that, you have had indigenous communities thriving sustainably and even able to have a re- a renaissances af- one after the other where you have music, you have art, you have all of these things that we see as being like the, the pinnacle of society and civilization mm-hmm. from communities that have been sustainable for thousands of years and without having to abuse and to take advantage of the landscape around them. If only we would listen. <laughs> yeah. But I think that's all I got to say about pipelines and tar sands and oil distribution on the surface. Yeah. If you guys have any like questions about it or things you want us to talk about further or whatever, we are happy to talk about it. Um, Like I said earlier, this is about making this information accessible and understandable to everyone. So if you want to further the conversation on any specific topic, or if you have topics you want us to cover in other episodes, yeah, please hit us up. Yeah. Anyways. Thanks for listening. What do you think, Micah?